Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. After, this is Genesis 14, 17 through 24. After his return from defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought, his bread, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkele, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. Um, good morning. Glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, we're glad you're with us uh, this morning. To everybody who has expressed condolences to me for a certain stupid football team losing a game last night, I appreciate that. Football's a dumb sport, and we're dumb for watching it. So good luck to the rest of you. Uh, I would ask you to keep the um, Matt and Kelly Gay and their family in prayer. They are not here because I guess they've been dealing, I think they were dealing with COVID a few weeks ago and then the flu. I think maybe I violated HIPAA laws. Sorry about that, Kelly and Matt, but uh, man, they're going through it. And so just please, I would ask you to keep them in your prayers. We are in um, a series in um, a section of the book of Genesis that deals with uh, the life of Abraham and Sarah and God's relationship with Abraham and Sarah. And really right at the beginning of the Bible, God shows himself to be intensely personal with us. And today I'm, I'm covering chapters 13 and 14. Um, Becky read the very end of 14, and a lot happens in these two chapters. It really comes down to three decisions that Abram makes and can be summarized fairly quickly. And so I'm going to go through it and read a few scriptures, but summarize a lot of what goes on in those few chapters. And it builds to the scene that Becky read where Abram is coming back from a battle, and he's won this battle. And two kings, a bunch of kings, but two kings are highlighted that come out to meet him. And Abram has a decision to make about which king he's going to honor and which king he's not going to honor and how he makes that choice. And really, these two chapters are about that. There was a pastor years ago, I remember listening to him, he said, what's the most spiritual thing you will do today? And so it's Sunday, and so you think, well, the most spiritual thing that I'm going to do today, I'm at church, so I win on that one. Like, I get points because I'm here. Good job. Uh, I don't know what it is most days. You'd think like reading my Bible might be the most spiritual thing I do or praying or um, any, any number of things. And his answer was the most spiritual thing that you'll do today is choose. And that's 20 years ago and it stuck with me because it's um, like on the one hand it's like duh, but on the other hand it's, it's like he's right. Like it all comes down to choices. And so you made a choice to be here this morning, and there's a whole ch- decision tree uh, behind that, and how you made that decision, and what you think is going to happen because of that decision. And there's the decision tree for me, too, and mine is probably different than yours. And we, I mean, how many decisions do you make in a day? 
like you can't even begin to think about how many decisions you make in a day. Um, and how do you make them? And how many of them are significant? And how many of them aren't? You know, uh, I can, uh, I, I've said this before, I've owned this, I can overthink things. Um, somebody felt the need to send me an Instagram post that I just took a screenshot of a couple weeks ago that if overthinking was an Olympic sport, I would have a bunch of gold medals for it. So thanks. Um, you mean the person that sent it to me can overthink things themselves, and I'm not going to say who they are, but they're in this room, okay? And so you know who you are, and uh, I'm not the only one that can overthink things, and I get that. And so I, like, I've gotten in the habit of saying to myself and to other people, when I know I'm overthinking something, and I'll say it to you when I know you're overthinking something, is like, this is the least important decision that you're going to make today, <laughs> so like, let's not overthink this one, you know? But some decisions are worth thinking a lot about, um, but even then, so my kids... Uh, I've got four kids who are in college. Abigail is soon going to leave me and go to college. And when when Michael was thinking about colleges, I'm like, man, there's there's how many colleges are there? Like thousands of colleges that you could go to. And so, man, that's a, there's a lot. There's a big decision. And over time with him, and I've repeated this for Matthew and for Abigail, um, is is thinking, okay, there's. There's, you can make a bad decision, you can make a good decision, you can make a better decision, and you could make a best decision. You probably do this with anything, but with colleges, I find it helpful. So a bad decision would be like paying a ton of money for a, to go to a school that doesn't have your major, right? That would be a bad decision. Or not, maybe not having any idea what you want to do, but paying a ton of money to go to college is probably not, not a great decision. So we're going to stay out of the realm of bad decision making. Best decision would probably be getting a full ride to the school that is the number one school in the thing that you are positive that you want to do. Like that's the best decision. Unfortunately, we didn't have any best decision options, you know, where you get that full ride. And so we're somewhere between good and better, and you'll never know the difference because once you go to college, it's great, and you'll figure it out, and not many people look back and think, man, I really screwed that up, right? So you're between good and better, and so it's good. And so like that's a helpful framework for for me to accept their decisions, but for them to like not overthink something. So we, we make decisions all the time in different ways. How you use your time, you'll make that decision every single day. What you say, what you don't say, how you say it, you make those decisions like all day long, right? Um, what you want to get done, what you don't want to get done, how you're going to do it. And as I read through these two chapters, all of them really, but 13 and 14 particularly, I realize these choices and the discernment that Abraham develops is a big topic in them. And Abram has changed. And this might be just the guts of the whole thing, that last week's message and passage, Abraham was acting out of fear. And in this week's passage, he has three decisions and he acts out of faith. Like he has grown. And so... Um, that the cookies are on the bottom shelf today, and it's about decisions, and last week he doesn't discern well, and this week he does. So last week's message, Abraham had um, two weeks ago been called to go to a land that God promised him. He gets to the land last week. There's Canaanites in it. That's a problem. And then there's a famine, and there's no food, and that's a problem. So he makes a decision to go down to Egypt to ride out the famine. He, um, uh, he asks his wife to say that she is his sister because he's afraid that the men of Egypt are going to say she's, see that she's beautiful and kill him to get her. And so he acts out of fear. God makes it evident that that is a, 
a bad decision for him to make. Um, but God's gracious to him. God spares him from anything that could happen in Egypt. And he walks out of Egypt a richer man than when he came, even though he made bad decisions when he's there. So this is, he walks out of that into these scenes. This is the beginning of Genesis 13. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he'd made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So he goes back from Egypt through the southern part of Israel back to where he started when he came in, where he had built an altar to the Lord, found out there were Canaanites. God, God said, this is the place, and he built an altar and worships the Lord. He goes back to that place. There's an element of repentance in what he does here. Like he goes back to the start, he worships the Lord in that place again. I don't know if you've ever done that, where you've gone through a period in your life where you probably questioned or strayed, but then you come back, and, and a lot of times it is a place or a time or a person that is like a reminder to you of God's faithfulness to you in a time when you really trusted the Lord. And so he comes back to that, um, and there's something in that, in this story. Now Lot's with him, um, and they have a problem. They have so much stuff. Their herds are so big that the land that they are on is not big enough, and their herdsmen start fighting with each other about the land. So if you watch Yellowstone, think Yellowstone. It's that type of problem, and they don't know what they're going to do. It's a good problem to have, kind of a surprising problem to have, given that they're foreigners in the land. So Abram says to Lot, this is his decision. He says to Lot, hey, we need some space. We need to get away from each other. You pick which way you're going to go, and I'll go the other way. And that's always seemed kind of innocuous to me, but it's a big deal. Abram is uh, Lot's uncle. Lot's father had passed away, so Abram's really a father figure. He's the patriarch of this family for sure. Abraham has received a promise of this land, and here he's, he's risking giving away the land that God had promised him um, to his nephew. And there are, there, are, there are financial elements to the decision because some of the land is better than the other land. Genesis 13.10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. So you got the Jordan River runs on the east side of Israel, and the valley there is a, a fertile piece of land. And Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. And so there's a lot in just the language of this and how they make these decisions. Lot looked around, saw that this land was fertile, and he chose it. He saw and he took. In Genesis, that's bad language. Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good to look at, um, good for food, good to make one wise, and so she took it, and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband. Um, uh, this, in the crazy story in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God see that the daughters of men are attractive, and they take them. They see, and they take. In a few weeks, we're going to look at Hagar, or uh, Sarai sees what takes Hagar and gives her to her husband, Abram, and that ends up being a bad thing. This see and take language is like code for bad decision. Lot is walking by sight and not by faith. He is simply doing what makes sense to him and what's best for him. Now, sometimes doing what makes sense to you is just fine. God gave you a brain. Use it. Like where you go to lunch today is maybe the least important decision you'll make today. 
you know, who you go to lunch with might be more significant, but like just make decisions, you know. But Lot limits the scope of factors that he's considering to what is best for me. And so even in that, like the garden of the Lord, um, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar, those are all ominous, like the garden of the Lord is Eden. God banned them from going back there, but he's like trying to get back there. Egypt is code in the Bible for not a place that you want to go, and they were just there and bad stuff had happened. And Zoar is where he's going to end up after Sodom. will be there in a month or so, and really bad things happen in Zoar. Uh, and so um, it's all code for he's, this is not a good decision. He journeys east. East is away from the Lord. He settles in the cities of the valley. Settling is not something that God's been a fan of to this point, and Lot does all that. He is walking by sight, not by faith. Abraham is walking by faith and not by sight. Abraham has taken his hands off of the situation, um, trusting that God's going to take care of it. Last week, Abram worked really hard to manipulate the situation to get the outcome that he wanted. This week, he takes his hands off it, believing that God's going to take care of him. So Lot is acting out of fear. If I don't take care of myself, no one else will. And Abraham is acting out of faith. And Lot really should have thought, well, this is my uncle. Um, I, he's let me tag along with him. I'm kind of like living on his coattails. I'll defer and let him make the decision. But God never seems to be in the equation for Lot throughout the book of Genesis. After this, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, After Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land that you see I'll give you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm going to give it to you. So God affirms that decision immediately, reiterates the promise that he's made to him. Lot's problem was considering what's best for him without considering what's right. Abraham considers what's right before he considers what's best for him. Um, and Abraham, is um, his decision is vindicated almost immediately by the Lord. And it says he settles in Hebron, a city to the south, builds another altar to the Lord. That's the first of these three decisions that he makes. Here's the second. You get into chapter 14. I'm going to summarize really the first half of the chapter 14 because there's a lot going on. But the gist of it is that four eastern kings suppress a revolt by five kings that were in the Dead Sea area, which is where um, Abram and Lot are. So in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and this is Shinar. Does anybody remember what Shinar is? A little, little Bible study. This is where Babel was. There where they built the Tower of Babel was Shinar. Samaria, it's going to become Babylon. So it's way over there. This guy, and Ariach, the king of Elisar, Keterlaamar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goem, Goem, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemaber, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So here's a map. Uh, the, so the Hittite kingdom is probably Goem. You can see the Elamite kingdom, Sumer. So that's, those are the kings, and that was like the... The, the best part of all this, this is the New York and L.A. part of it that he leaves to go to the Sticks, which is where the Jordan Valley is and um, the, where the Dead Sea is. Uh, what's, what's going on here, most likely, is that the, the little area, which is where Abram is settled and these kings around him, are probably like occupied territories of the big area that don't want to pay their taxes anymore. And so the big dogs are going to get together, come in, and put them in their place. 
Does it make sense? It's like us in England, um, but we were the good guys, and there's really no good guys in this story. And so that's, that's what's going on in chapter 14. Now, it says the tension mounts as they raid and conquer all of the Transjordan. The Jordan River runs right through the Jordan Valley. Either side of it is the Transjordan. And when you go through all of where they go and the locations, they go all around there. Um, and they rout the rebels. And Abram has nothing to do with it until they capture Lot. So Lot is now in Sodom. He's wealthy. They see that he's wealthy. And so they kidnap Lot. Then Abraham comes on the scene. Abraham, when Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is going to the northernmost tip of what will be Israel. He goes north, and he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, he defeated them. He pursued, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And so a little strategery, attacks at night, divides his forces, wins the battle. And then it says he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Second big decision requiring some discernment. And he chooses to go after Lot. Now, you could say Lot got himself into this mess. Lot can get himself out of it. Um, I don't need to put my life on the line to save Lot. Lot settles near Sodom, and then he's in Sodom. Sodom had a reputation already. He should have, he probably knew that when he decided to settle there and, and would have learned it quickly, but moves closer to Sodom. And so that's just what happens sometimes, you know. Um, I was going through this and remembering there's a young woman at our, at our old the church that I was on staff at before we, we started Oak City, and um, her mom had been coming to church, and I think she had come a time or two, but I don't know how many people are going to remember this, because this is like, had to be like 20 years ago. There was at an NC State football game at a tailgate in the parking lot that's like right next to the state fair where you walk in across Trinity from the stadium. There was a shooting, and two guys that had come down from the Midwest to watch the game, I think they got killed by two local guys. Anybody remember this? Um, well, in any case, this young woman was friends with the two local guys that did the shooting, and they came to her house afterwards, and she, like, took them to Walmart or something like that, and, and she ended up getting charged with accessory after the fact because she was, you know, hanging out with the wrong people in the wrong place and didn't get it. And, um, and so I got, um, I, I ended up going down to the Wake County Detention Center a bit and just, you know, trying to minister to her. And she ended up, I think she ended up getting probation. She ended up, she's in a great place now. I saw her about six months ago. Every time I see her, she gives me a big hug because there was like significant time in her life. But like, that's what happens, you know? <laughs> Like, you put yourself, and that's what Lot has done. He's put himself in this position. And so Abraham could have just justified not acting and saying, well, sometimes you need to learn your lesson. But instead, uh, he goes. And his decision to go is a really bold decision. Like, you saw the map. Um, this is the ultimate underdog. Like, he is going against powerful nations. He has 318 guys. This is, like, kind of unbelievable. Um, it's, if you remember the movie 300, that was like the Battle of Thermopylae or something like that. Do I have that right? Uh, that's kind of what this situation is. Um, and so he's risking everything uh, to do it. 
And again, Lot is not considering the Lord in his decisions, and Abram seems to be trusting God in new ways, and God blesses him, and he wins the battle. Now, that's a second decision, and it gets us to the scene that Becky read at the beginning. Um, after his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So these kings, and it's not just these two kings, but the kings that he has helped are coming out into this valley, and they're greeting him. And the king of Sodom, king of Sodom is not a good guy. We'll learn more about him later. Obviously, the king of Salem is a total mystery. <laughs> uh, Salem is shalom. It's peace. He is the king of peace. Um, most think he is the king. The valley of Shaveh is right. It's still there. It's right outside of Jerusalem. So he's coming out of Jerusalem. Most think he's the king over Salem, which would become Jerusalem. His name means the king of righteousness. And then the passage says he was priest of God Most High. Um, somehow, and I don't think anyone could have seen this coming, God calls Abraham into this land, promises it to him, and in the midst of this land is a priest to that same God that called him into this land, and the guy's already there. And Abram has to be like, wait, what'd you say? <laughs> like, he's got to be shocked um, at, at what's going on, and it's surprising and encouraging. I don't know if you've ever been like um, in just in a situation in your neighborhood, it, in a class, on a team, at work, where you're just like, I don't know if anybody here cares about Jesus at all, and then you find out that there's someone that is trusting Jesus in the same way, and it's like a super encouraging thing. This is that, but more. This is the guy that wants to talk about Jesus all the time. That's this guy, and he comes out in the midst of this situation where these kings are coming back, and Abraham's coming back from battle, and he praises God, who is the creator of all things, and who has blessed Abram. Uh, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. This is who God is. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so he declares to Abram, God is the one that has given you the victory. And I think that's significant. Like Abram comes back um, from an unlikely victory, could be feeling really good about himself, and meets this crazy king priest guy who says, God's the one that gave you the victory. Man, there's so many situations where you kind of have the choice between saying, well, you just don't know. Like, did God do that? Did God intervene and do that? Or did I do that? You know what I mean? Like, there's just tons of situations like that. And in the midst of that, to have God bring someone who declares no, 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 God's the one who did that, is like seeing things through the eyes of faith, and he speaks that into Abram. And then the king of Sodom comes and says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And this is really different. Um, Abram has just saved this guy's bacon, you know, like, and he's being bossy. Um, this guy had lost previously to these bigger kings. He lost the battle and lived. Uh, I, I don't, he couldn't have exactly been William Wallace leading the charge or he'd be dead, um, but he made it through it. And now he gets all his stuff back. And really what he's declaring is, Abram, you won the victory and you deserve the spoils. And so you take the goods for yourself. So Melchizedek is saying, God did this. Isn't God awesome? 
And Sodom is saying, Abram, you did this, you're awesome, but really he's angling, and Abram knows it. So in a sense, Melchizedek is acting out of faith, and the king of Sodom is ultimately acting out of fear, or just the absence of God. And Abram has a choice. So uh, his choice is to agree with Melchizedek that God's responsible for the victory and give the spoils to the Lord, or agree with the king of Sodom that Abram's responsible for the victory and take the spoils for himself. Um, again, what's, what's recent in his mind is what God's done for him in Egypt. And I think the grace of God has changed him. And so he says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So he repeats the language that Melchizedek uses to Sodom, which validates Melchizedek, like they're on the same page, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I, the king of Sodom, have made Abram rich. This is discernment. Like, he sees past the bright, shiny object, which is all the stuff and all the money that he would have gotten out of this, and sees that the king of Sodom is playing a game and wants leverage against Abram. He wants a chip that he can cash in later and says, I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me and let these other guys take their share if they want to, but I'm not taking anything from you. And then this backs up, because um, I, I reversed the order on these. Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And I'm not even sure what prompted this, but somehow he understood who Melchizedek was and honored the Lord by honoring Melchizedek. Uh, and that's like, um, Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Like there's just an understanding that you bring an offering to the Lord. And later it's, you know, it's a part of the Old Testament law. And in this place in Jerusalem was where the temple is going to be. And that's where the Jewish people are going to bring their tithes to the Lord. So it's a foreshadowing of that honor. But here Abram gives him um, a tenth of everything. Okay, here are three things. That, I th that I'm taking out of this. One, your relationship with God is about learning to trust him more tomorrow than you do today. Your relationship with God is about learning to trust him more tomorrow than you do today. And Abram has clearly changed from the last scene to this, to this one. And that doesn't mean he's going to stay here, you know. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but like faith just seems like a roller coaster sometimes. Or like it's a... It's a line where your faith is growing, and it's kind of up and to the left, and it's getting better, but a lot of times it feels like two steps forwards and one step back. And so you trust him and trust him and trust him, and then you're like, I think I got this, and then something happens, and you realize, oh, no, I need to trust him. Or sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back, but he's always using that um, to grow you. And in these scenes, clearly he's changed, and his faith uh, has grown. Um, this just brought to my mind this passage in Philippians, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Like he's always, in every situation, he is always working to build our faith and to build our trust. And whether on our good days and our bad days, he's always at work in it. And so when that pastor said, how many ever years ago, the most spiritual thing you'll do today is choose, he, he's right. Um, and I think, it, like, in the essence of this, um, some of those choices matter more than others, 
Uh, but like, I don't know, how many choices do we make out of fear and how many choices do we make out of faith? How many choices are we just trying to control things and how many choices are we relinquishing control to the Lord? Um, can I trust that God's at work in my relationships? Uh, marriage is like the ultimate tool of sanctification because you're committed to a person for life. Um, and so, and you're, and you're, the context you're in, the crucible that you're in, like draws out things where you see things about each other that no one else is ever going to see. Like the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know? And, but you're in it together and you've committed. And so in that place, if two people are faithfully seeking the Lord, God can do so much work in that relationship that I don't know that he can do in any other relationship. But it leads to lots of situations where you think, um, is God working here? Is, am I scared that this is never going to change? Or do I have faith that God is at work, not just in the person I'm married to, but God is at work in me? And can I see that? Do I trust that God is working in that relationship? Do I trust that God is at work in the lives of my children? I sent out something Sunday or Friday in the, in the weekly um, about, and I'm, I'm just sensitive to this, I send this stuff out a lot, but about kids and faith formation, and it was um, to the effect that, like, the worst way of forming your kid's faith is by saying, just trust me, like, I'm smarter than, like, trust me, bro, is a bad strategy to pass on your faith, but, like, listening to them and considering, like, other ways of thinking about things, and I can remember times of, like, thinking, Ooh, do I want to tell them, and one of the lines I would use with my kids, like, you're going to get to a point where you realize not everyone believes like It's everybody in your world that you know when they're young, you think they all believe this, but then you're going to get to a point where they don't, and they believe radically other things. And, like, how early do you introduce that thought to them? But if you wait and wait and wait, then it comes across as you're hiding something from them. And, like, there's a fear versus faith in how you work out that relationship. Um, do I trust that God is at work in the lives of the people around me, friends and neighbors and coworkers? Do I trust that, I don't know, you may be in a sticky situation at work where you're asked to cut corners. Do I trust that if I do the right thing, God is going to honor it? Um, it Maybe that the, the course that you've, you're on, it's just like you can't, one of the things I love about Abraham's story is, um, God sets him on a course um, and shows up now and again, but like between two of the chapters, right after the Hagar story and before God comes back and says that he's, in a year they'll have Isaac, it's a 13-year gap, and it doesn't look like anything happens. For 13 years, it's just silent, and so they stay the course. And so are you on a course where you're like just trusting that if I stay the course that God, I'm confident God's put me on, it's going to be okay, or does God call on you to take a right, right turn where you have to like, take that right turn and trust that God will be faithful. Do you trust God more than you did five years ago? One year ago, six months, six months ago? Like, are you growing in that? Because that's, um, he's going to use everything to grow our trust in him. All right. You can trust God even when it doesn't feel right or make much sense. And so Abraham, in these passages, acts on faith, and not by feels. He's gone from trying to manipulate a situation to taking the hands off it and trusting God that God's going to take care of it. Um, and he makes decisions based on what's right, uh, not on 
what would obviously look best for him. Like letting Lot choose the land, I don't even think that's a good decision. I don't know why he did that in the first place. Um, it seems like he's taken his hands off too far. And when Lot picks the land, it would make sense for me to Abraham say, well, actually, forget that. I'm going to take that land um, and you're going to take this land because I should have the better land because it's my land. Um, but also because he could say, Lot, I know you can't handle being close to Sodom and I'll do a better job of that. Like there's a lot of reasons he could have done that, um, but he doesn't. He takes his hands off of it, um, even when it doesn't make sense. His, his decisions cost him financially, materially, in the short run. Giving Lot the better land is not a great decision. Uh, it, that decision at the end, where he could take the spoils from these kings that he has won back, um, but instead he gives 10%. And it's not clear whether he gives 10% of the spoils or 10% of everything he already has. But his accountant was not happy with that decision. Right? Like, that's a hard decision. And God throughout Scripture, is calling us to give of the first fruits of what he's given us back to the Lord because one of the most concrete ways he can, tangible ways he can build your faith is with your stuff and with your finances. Um, and it's a way throughout Scripture of him saying, I'm the one that provides for you. Whatever you have, I'm the one that provided it for you. And so you recognizing that as a way of trusting me, offer back the first fruits of what I've given you. It's not so different than him being in that valley in Melchizedek saying, God did this for you, and Sodom saying, Abram, you did this for yourself. Melchizedek giving honor to the Lord and, and the king of Sodom saying, you deserve it. Um, and so it, that's a challenge. Like, are you trusting the Lord with your stuff? And I, and I know, like, it's a lot of you trusted in magnificent ways and you've learned that I'm, i mean when we got married i'd gone from a corporate job to being a youth pastor at what was really still a church plant at hope and my wife was a nursing student and so giving i remember coming on staff at a church and asking my mentor from back in columbus i'm like hey when i go on staff at a church do i have to give 10 percent because the money kind of comes back to me because now i get paid by the church he's like yeah you still have to give 10 percent, like dummy and um but man like our budget was laughable in those moments but God has always provided like now we've got kids in college for years I'm like how's that going to work Bobby Joe's job now which provides her a lot of overtime and they pay her silly money to work overtime was like a random conversation she had with a friend that was here for years and I think Bobby Joe asked her hey do you have a job for me like and the lady's like